we're still in Luke. And what we did last time was God and Mammon. What we're going to move into now is what Bailey calls the kingdom, not yet. In other words, the kingdom coming. And it's going to be Luke 12, 35 through the end of the chapter, and then Luke 16, where we have the parable of the dishonest manager. God willing, I'll get through them both tonight. Both of these are talking about a master who is absent and has left his estate or his kingdom or whatever in the hands of servants. The first one, which is in Luke 12, talks about maintaining readiness and how you treat the servants. And then in Luke 16, with the dishonest manager, he talks about how you account for the property that you've been given and also talks about the character of the master. And I'm going to, quite frankly, go fairly quickly through the Luke 12 stuff because I want to spend most of the time in Luke 16. So I'm in Luke 12:35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him once he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Today I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. So what he's saying is, and this would be obviously uncharacteristic, the master is away at a wedding feast and the servants are ready for him to come and when he comes back, if he finds the servants doing what the servants are supposed to be doing, the master will then serve the servants. 38. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So obviously this is enjoining watchfulness. Pretty much any Sunday pastor will use that to preach on the doctrine of imminence. Doctrine of imminence says that Yeshua can come back 24-7-365 and in a year. So the idea there is everybody needs to be on his toes because we could look up and there he is. I don't find that doctrine persuasive. I, mean, I understand why people teach it because it tends to give people an attitude of being on their toes. But I will suggest that it doesn't really, because preachers have been saying he can come 24-7, 365 for 2,000 years. And the first couple thousand times you hear it, it's kind of exciting, but it sort of loses its impact. My personal opinion, and this is just opinion, it's not thus saith anybody but me, is that he is going to come back on one of the major feasts. He did everything else on one of the major feasts, so I don't see any reason why he won't come back on a feast. And again, you all know that he's basically used Passover. That's when the death, burial, and resurrection happened. And he's also used Shavuot because that's when the Holy Spirit was given, which leaves, obviously, the fall feasts. So... What I think is going to happen, and again, what I think is going to happen really doesn't cut a whole lot of ice with God. God 
God's going to do what God's going to do, and he's not going to consult me first. So what I kind of think is going to happen is the Feast of Trumpets, the seventh trump is when he will touch down. And then 10 days later, we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting, literally, which is Yom Kippur. And then he will tabernacle with his people, which is Sukkot. He does everything else according to patterns, and so that's what I think is going to happen. I heard an interesting midrash the other day, again by my favorite rabbi at the moment, David Foreman, and he was talking about exile. You remember the promise to Abraham is that your children will be slaves for 400 and some odd years and they'll come back and, and so forth. His speculation is that Jacob, when he was with Laban, was slavery, unquote, because Laban was, you know, theoretically paying him, but was cheating him and all that kind of stuff. And he came back after 21 years. You all know the story, and you can do the counting as well as I can. So it takes 21 years before he comes back. They go down into Egypt, and that only takes 210 years. Notice 210 is 10 times 21. They went into exile again, and notice we are now in the 21st century after that exile. So 10 times 10 times 10. So don't know that there's anything to it other than just it's interesting. But if the pattern was set by Jacob at 21, and then, as I say, the children of Israel were in fact enslaved in Egypt for 210 years, not 400, and... If it's going by decades, we're now coming into the 21st century after the exile. Again, do with that whatever you like. I just thought the numbers were kind of interesting. And I'm not one of these guys that takes obscure passages of Scripture and multiplies by seven and all that kind of stuff. I'm simply saying it's interesting. So anyway, the point is, Yeshua says in other places, and in fact, he says it in one of the passages I'll read tonight. You look at the sky and you can tell it's going to rain. But you look around and you can't see that it's the time of the Messiah. So I think the return of the Messiah is also going to be obvious. And I think it's going to play out according to Revelation. And I think we are right now somewhere between fourth and the sixth seal. And you remember the fifth seal happens in heaven. It's not visible on earth. That's the one where the people cry out from under the throne and so forth. So... We've had four, which is famine, pestilence, and so forth. The first four seals, I think, have opened in effect. Five we don't observe, so the next one we're waiting for is six. And six is not going to be subtle. That's when you're going to have islands moved out of their orbit and all that kind of stuff. So I don't think that the coming of the Son of Man is going to be subtle or unexpected all of which is sort of a long way around saying why well, I don't buy the doctrine of imminence. If you like the doctrine of imminence, fine. You are in line with most of Christianity, and they're not stupid. So either way is fine with me. I don't care. On to verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household? Now notice if God willing, we will get to the parable of the dishonest manager 
in 16. So you see the parallelism here. He's talking about a manager set over the household, and then in Luke 16, we'll talk about the dishonest manager. So who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master has set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. We're talking about the kingdom of God. So who are the managers then in that context? I would say priests, rabbis, teachers, people who are teaching about the kingdom of God. What I'm suggesting is there are people whose calling is to be teachers and pastors and priests and all that kind of stuff. And you all know very well the history of Christendom. And you know that there have been, over the ages, people in those positions who have, in fact, taken advantage of the ones that they're over. And what he's saying is, if I find when I come back that you guys are beating your other fellow servants and you're getting drunk, which is to say wasting my stuff and not doing what you're supposed to do, I will be upset. So that's sort of the essence of what he says here. 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. In other words, what he's saying is you're responsible for what you know. And the more you know, the more responsible you are. 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, to him much will be required. And from him to whom they, they entrusted much, they will demand more. So again, the idea is the more responsibility you get, the more responsible you are. Uh, and as in the case of the uh, parable of the talents, um, where, the, where you have one manager who takes um, the talents and, and doubles them, and another one who doubles them, and then one who just hides it away, um, what he's basically saying is, I have given you this talent, in, which is a nice word in English also, and if you're not using it for the furtherance of my kingdom, I'm going to get upset with you. And furthermore, I will give you in accordance with my estimation of your ability. So, if I estimate that you are a faithful servant, but you are not the best manager in the world, I will give you a small thing to manage. And if I, my estimation is you're a good manager and a good servant, I will give you a lot to manage. In other words, I will give to you in accordance with your talent. And if then you don't invest what I give you to the furtherance of my kingdom, then I will be upset with you. Verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now, again, I, I see that as a reference to his second coming. Because in the second coming, he, in fact, is going to cast fire down to earth. And, his, and the idea is, 
when he says, I would that it already were already kindled, I take that to be, okay, I got to go do this crucifixion thing, but I would really rather be engaged on putting things right, which can't happen until my second coming. Okay? In other words, I know I got to go do the crucifixion, but I would really rather be at the second coming, raining, raining down fire on earth and, and dealing with the, the malefactors. Um, verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Which is sort of what I just said. In other words, I've got this crucifixion to do. I, and, and certainly he is distressed that he's going to have to go through that. I mean, he, he weeps at, at the, in the garden the night before and so forth. But I read his distress here as, until I do that, I can't start kicking butt and taking names. Okay, so I, I read his distress here as I, I really want to get this going, but I can't yet. Okay, fifty-one. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother. So again, the idea is that some in each household are going to follow me and some aren't. And the divisions will be within a family. In other words, they won't be necessarily between nations. It will be a more intimate thing. So it will not be the nation of Israel, for example, united against the world. It will be division within Israel, where some will believe and some will not. 54. He also said to the crowd, now notice he's changed venue here. He's been speaking to his disciples. Now he's changed venue and he's speaking to the crowd. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching, but there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And that's what I was mentioning earlier. What he's saying is, you look around, you can tell what's going to happen in the weather, why are you not able to tell what's happening in the spirit? Which is to say the kingdom of God is here. Because remember, that's the first thing that he does when he, go, when he starts his ministry. Clear back in, in the early chapters of, of the Gospels, he is out there spreading the Gospel. And this is in like the third and fourth chapter of, of each of the Gospels. And so at that point, he is not preaching his death, burial, and resurrection. What he's preaching is, the Messiah is here. Okay? And remember, last time we said, you know, they, they asked him, well, gee, we thought Elijah was going to come. And he says, Elijah did come. And if you had accepted him, John would have been Elijah for you. But you didn't. Okay? So again, the possibility was there that Israel could have repented because what was his message when he started preaching? Repent. 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? If Israel had repented, then John would have been Elijah and the messianic age would have been would have entered in at that point. They did not. So now we're going to have to go through uh, the crucifixion and all that kind of thing, and then we're going to go into exile, which of course they do, uh, what, 30, 40, 35 years after his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then verse 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make a little effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. And I will suggest that in context, what we're talking about is what? In other words, this is, I don't think this is just a random plop, get along with somebody who's suing you. I think this has to do with the context of what we've been reading. Could be. That could be. Could be. Could be Satan. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Who are we talking about there? Well, the Chishu is speaking. It, it, yeah, Chishu is speaking. Who's accusing? Yeah, Yeshua is in the role of an Old Testament prophet here. He is going through Israel calling them to repent. And so the last thing he says is, hey guys, what you really need to do is make peace with your accuser because if you don't, your accuser, me, Yeshua, is going to drag you before the judge and you will not be released until you have paid every penny. Okay? All right, now, oh cool, We've got half an hour. Plenty of time, I hope. So now what we're going to do is we're going to skip over to Luke 16. Now, the thing we've been talking about all a half hour is the kingdom of God and the managers who have been entrusted with that kingdom. In other words, every one of these things is talked about, hey, if you've been given stewardship or given managership over part of my kingdom, I had better find you faithful when I come back or I'm going to be ticked. Right? So it's all in the context of management of the kingdom of God. So now in Luke 16, we have the parable of the dishonest manager. Okay? Which in the in the structure then is a mirror idea. So now we're in, in Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is asking, is to, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, 
and I'm ashamed to beg, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. Okay, so several things going on here. The first thing that, one of the things that you got to decide is, is the rich man a good guy or a bad guy? Okay, because that'll play into the story. Because if the, if the rich man is a good guy, then this manager is a bad guy. If the rich man is a bad guy, the manager may not be in such a bad light. Okay. In other words, if, and let me explain. So what we're talking about in this parable is rented land. Okay, rented land, tenant farmers. Okay, so what you have is is this this rich guy owns an estate, and he has leased out the estate to tenant farmers, and the tenant farmers are going to pay him in produce. And as we're going to see in a minute, what's going to happen is the is the the manager is going to go through and he's going to reduce the amount that they owe for the rental of the land. Okay, So one of the questions you need to ask is, was the rental fair to begin with? Well, it'll make a difference, and I'll, I'll, expl I'll explain how it makes a difference. Because if the rent was exorbitant, What's going on when the manager reduces the amount is he is simply reducing it to a fair level, which means that he is taking it out of graft that he was getting. That's one interpretation. In other words, you have, you have this, rent, this land for rent, the manager is managing it, he's charging exorbitant rates, so what he's doing is he's going to go and give these tenant farmers a kickback and it's going to come out of basically stuff that was being stolen anyway. Okay. The other possibility is the rich guy is a good guy. Okay. And the rents are reasonable. And so what's happening when he reduces the rent is he is basically taking it out of the master's pocket. Okay, that could that could be the case too, and part of that hinges on what kind of a manager is he. And there's several kinds of manager of a land. First off, you can have somebody who is essentially an accountant. Okay, all he's really doing is keeping the books. You can also have somebody who is a field manager. In other words, he goes around and he checks the crops and he makes sure that. Things are going well. The land's not being destroyed. He talks to the farmers, and he's the one that you know collects the rents, and he's he's a hands-on manager of the property. Okay, that's a different kind of manager. That's an important consideration because if he's just a bookkeeper, again, what he's doing is committing embezzlement here. If, however, he is a field manager. I've known lots of farmers, and I have never known a farmer that wasn't kind of grumpy and pessimistic. 
and oh, the bugs are bad this year, and the water wasn't very good, and you know, we had a late frost, and oh, you know, you know the drill. And so it would be the steward's job to make adjustments in the rent based on field conditions. So the rent gets set at the beginning of the growing season. Okay, you know, you, you're growing a, a thousand acres of wheat. You owe me the produce of 10 acres, which should be 100 bushels. Well, what happens if the produce isn't 100 bushels for 10 acres? We rip, yeah. And in other words, if I'm expecting the yield for 10 acres, which is going to be 100 bushels, I'm just using numbers, and we don't really have a good crop going this year. The manager could be out there and he would be talking to the farmers and he would see, oh, okay, the crop isn't going to, and that 10 acres worth of stuff isn't going to be 100 bushels, it's only going to be 90. So what I really need to do is go back and talk to the landlord or to the owner and say, yeah, you know, I, I know we rented it out for 100, but, you know, 90 is really what's fair. Okay? That would be a hands-on field manager as opposed to simply an accountant. Okay? So, the other thing that's interesting is the accusation is he's been wasting the rich man's goods. That accusation is true. How do we know that? Because he doesn't protest. In other words, when, when the rich man says, I have heard that you are wasting my stuff. You know, you've all seen the old grade B Middle Eastern movie. Oh, Saeed, no, 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 I'm your most faithful servant in the world. No, I'm not. Oh, no, no, no. The fact that there's no protest here at all indicates that he is, in fact, wasting the goods and he knows he's been nailed. Okay? Now, the other thing that's important here is he has not been arrested. Okay? Because if the crime were more serious, instead of saying, bring me the books, it would have been, Sheriff, arrest this man and I'll go get the books. Okay? So the fact that he hasn't been arrested here gives, is what gives him his opportunity. He's got this short window of opportunity where he can do something and that's when he hatches his plan. Now, the next question you ought to ask is, are the farmers in on this? In other words, we're about to reduce our bill. Do the farmers, are the farmers in collusion about this? Or are they innocent? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we can, but that's, that's the question. Are the farmers in on the scam? If the, if the landowner is a bad landowner, they might be. But if he's a good landowner, absolutely not. Why? Yeah, it's too risky. In other words, if the rich man discovers that they have been in collusion with his manager to cheat him, they will lose their lease and they will not be able to farm that land again. You'll go out and find other farmers. Now, by the amount of the rent that we have here, and let's, let's go ahead and read on it. Uh, 
So I'm down to verse 4. Uh, actually, verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, notice not all together, but one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Okay. So what he's done is he's brought the tenants in, and we can tell that these are wealthy tenant farmers by the size of the rent. Okay, a hundred measures of wheat's a lot of wheat, and if that's just the rent, you can imagine that the plot of land is producing considerably more, which they then have to sell. Okay. Could be. But you, you see what I'm saying, though? Yeah, they, they, these are wealthy farmers. They are tenant farmers. They don't own the land, but they're wealthy. So if word gets back to the rich man that they have um, participated in collusion to cheat him, they will not get their plot of land back, and they will no longer be wealthy farmers. So they cannot afford to be involved in this. Okay. No, 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 not at all, not at all. That's the that's the whole point of the deal here. Okay, so now what's the business of take your bill and write down twenty? Okay, the way contracts were done is the two parties would sit down together with the contract. The contract would be written out in the hand of the tenant and would be kept by the landlord. So if there's a change made to the contract, if it's not in the tenant's handwriting, everybody knows that the tenant didn't make the change. But the contract is in the landlord's safe so that the tenant can't make a change. So the only way you can make a change to the contract is if both the landlord and the tenant are sitting down across the table and the change is made in the handwriting of the tenant. Which is why he has to call these guys in and why he has to call them in one at a time. Because none of, none of them can know what he's doing with the others. Okay? So... Remember, we go, now let's go back to uh, the little riff I did of what kind of a manager is he. So what we can say is, and again, as I say, I've never met a farmer, when you ask him how things are going, that, oh, too many bugs, oh, not enough rain, you know, you know the attitude. So the idea that the, the manager is telling them to reduce their bill, they are sure that he has gone back to the landlord and convinced the landlord that things aren't as good as they had hoped and it's really appropriate to give a reduction. In other words, the attitude here is, I, the manager, have been talking to the owner and I've been fighting on your behalf and I have gotten you this reduction. Yeah? We'll get there in a minute. We'll get there in a minute. Okay, so you understand what's going on? The psychology of it, okay? As I say, nobody ever thinks 
that his rent is too low. Okay? People just don't think that way. So, well, they don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nobody ever thinks that his rent is too low. So when this manager comes in and says, what do you owe my master? 100 measures of wheat. Write down 80. What the farmer is thinking is, all right, the guy's gone to bat for me. Okay? And so what he does is he then has made a friend of the tenant farmer. Because you've been fighting for me. So now he goes back to the, to the uh, landlord with the books. The landlord sees immediately what's happened. The landlord is not stupid. All right, now let's look. Uh, verse 7. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wood, so forth. Okay. And then verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So why has the manager, or the, the, the landlord, commended this guy for ripping him off 50 measures of oil and 20 measures of wheat? No, no, he's fired. Oh yeah, he's still fired. Oh, he is so fired. Okay, that's exactly right. So what's happened now is these farmers have gone back into town, gone back home, and they said, all right, very good. The, 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 the landlord has reduced our rent. And, you know, they all hit the pub and, you know, they maybe buy around and say, here's to the landlord. Okay, so all over town, people are getting the word that the landlord has reduced their rent. If he goes back, because now, understand that the manager has no authority to do what he did. The tenants don't know that because there's this, this, this time frame between, you're fired, bring me the books. So there's this, this, this window of opportunity. And during that time frame, everybody still thinks he's the manager. But he's not. He's been fired. So the landlord is perfectly within his rights to say, wait a minute. I am a victim of fraud here. Put it back to 100. And what's going to happen is everybody in town is going to say, oh, you stingy so-and-so. Okay? Even though he's the one that got cheated. Okay? The attitude of everybody is going to be, well, gee, I was just 20 measures of wheat richer, and now I'm 20 measures poorer. Well, it, it, that all happens in 15 minutes, so there really hasn't been any change, but psychologically there has. Okay? So he cannot say, I have been defrauded by my manager, put it back the way it was. The manager knows this. Yeah? Yeah. 
Yeah, they don't know about the fraud. As far as they're concerned, the manager was still the manager, and he was doing them a favor. And so he's now welcome to come into their houses because they all like him now. He's still fired, okay, but he's not thrown in jail. And he has secured for himself a place in the community as a good guy at the landlord's expense. But the landlord is also considered a town guy. Yes. Exactly. Very clever, okay? And as Kay said, everybody in this, in the eyes of the town, is a good guy. The manager's a good guy because he got a rent reduced. The landlord is a good guy because he listened to his manager and reduced our rent. I mean, we ultimately owe the rent to the landlord, okay? So the reputation of the landlord and the reputation of the manager has gone up in the community as Kay said, at the expense of, what, 50 measures of oil and 20 measures of wheat. And again, notice that there is no intimation that the manager gets rehired. He doesn't. He, he, he's fired. He's, he's gone. Okay? Now, there is a theological lesson in this. In my Bible, this is all in red. Right? What's the theological lesson? The manager has bet everything on his estimation of the character of the landowner. Okay? In other words, he, the manager, believes that the landlord is fundamentally a good guy, that the landlord will be somewhat mollified by having his reputation bumped up in the village and that he will be merciful to the manager under those circumstances. So basically the, the manager has thrown himself on the mercy and on the character of the landowner. Okay? Because if he misjudges this guy's character, He's in jail, and he's in jail for fraud, and he, he's going to learn how to dig, okay? But of course, he hasn't misestimated the character of the landlord, and as I say, in, the, in doing this, he has bet everything on the character of the landowner. And the theological point here is, we should bet everything on our understanding of the character of the master. Okay? I mean, this, this is walking a tightrope without a net. If, if, if this doesn't work, the manager is not only out without a job and not welcome, he's also probably in prison. So he bets everything. No reserve whatsoever. And as I say, the lesson for us is you should be able then to bet everything on the character of Yeshua. Or the Father. And the Father. Yeah. 
Depends on what kind of a manager it is. Yes. Okay, and it depends on what kind of a landlord it is. If you are talking the Ottoman Empire, where the landlords lived in Istanbul, owning land hundreds of miles away in Israel, where you had a resident manager and an absentee landlord, you are correct. Okay. Under those circumstances, the the amount of graft that was expected of the manager was quite large. And uh, they routinely would squeeze as much as they could get out of the tenants because they, they didn't own the land and the manager living in Istanbul had no relationship with the tenants. All he cared about was getting a steady stream of revenue. He didn't care how the tenants were treated. Okay, What the assumption is here is that the owner of the land lives in the village. Okay? And that he in fact has a stake in the local community. And under those circumstances, the manager, of course, gets a fee for management. Okay? And of course, at sheep shearing time, you know, they slip him a little bit of, you know, it's sort of like uh, the manager of a factory giving out Christmas turkeys. You know, of course, at special feasts and stuff, he would the manager would get a little something extra. You know, but that that's we're not talking about heavy graft here. We're talking about the equivalent of a frozen turkey. You know, we're we're slaughtering all our turkeys. Here's an extra one for you. It's been a good year, and that's not on the books, and that's not graft, and that's just sort of lubrication that makes things go well. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like Larry. I'm sure every now and then it drops off an extra case of tortillas to a good to a good customer, just to keep. You know, there's no graft there, I mean, there's no dishonesty. It's just a small gift in in in, in a business sense. Um, we're not talking major graft, and and of course the manager is compensated by the landowner for his services. In other words, he's hired by the landowner. Um, but as I say, if he's if he's treating these people as an absentee landlord would, they would hear about it in the village. Word would get around. Does that so make sense? Okay. So, so we come to the end here. What we've got is management of the kingdom. In other words, how do the managers that God puts in charge of his kingdom behave? Thing one is you need to be vigilant. Thing two is you need not to abuse the other servants in the kingdom and make sure that they're fed and cared for. 
Thing three is you have to trust in the character of the master. Okay? And that's what this, the unjust steward is about. Even if he was a rascal, which he is, by risking everything on the character of the master, he comes out the far side smelling like a rose. Lost his job, okay? He's not going to get hired back. But he's made friends, and he's welcome anywhere in town, and all based on his estimation of what the character of the master is. That's all I got to say. You're talking about unrighteous mammon? Um, some people see those two as connected. The guy whose outline I am going by sees the parable of God and mammon as in fact being a conflict with the Pharisees over money. And we went through those two parables last time. 